everyone, and welcome to our second interview on Book Talk. My name is Kathy Logan, and I'll be interviewing author Gerald Everett Jones, author of the Evan Wycliffe Mysteries. The trilogy has won five awards, including an NYC Big Book Silver and Mystery for the sequel, Preacher Fakes a Miracle, winning the top two awards in that competition in the same year. Let's begin and see what Gerald has to say about the first book, Preacher Finds a Corpse, and his life as a writer. Um, so first question I have um, for you is how is small town clergyman preacher Evan um, Wycliffe did I say that correctly Wycliffe Wycliffe actually Uh, it's after the Wycliffe Bible commentary which is (laughs) a thing that you know ministers Mm -hmm. and theologians would know about oh that's a that's a very smart reference there I like that um, well, so there's, how... I dropped the E at the end, but that's, that's oh, I got you. I'll kind of do it. Make sure to like, differentiate <laughs> in a little bit. <laughs> but um, how is he um, an amateur sleuth, as you call him? A, an amateur sleuth in in the and it's a classic genre of mystery fiction, of course. But an amateur sleuth is a reluctant investigator, someone who not only is not trained in police work or investigative uh, work or criminal law, but in his role as minister in this small town, and actually when the series begins, he's just a guest preacher. He's not even ordained. And, but, but the thing is that the people in this town will come to him with problems, with problems that others have no interest in solving. And as a compassionate person, as a curious person, uh, he gets involved. And in this first book in the series, Preacher Finds a Corpse, he finds his best friend dead in a cornfield. So, I mean, he's he's pulled into it, uh, whether he likes it or not, because he really has trouble believing that his friend had any reason to kill himself. And yet it has all of the outward appearance of a suicide. And indeed, the sheriff's office wants to write it off and you know it looks like a suicide if it looks like it then that's what it is and let's just move on so that's what that that's the what you'd call the engine of drama in that in that book gotcha all right yeah that's very um interesting you said that that he isn't ordained so um so how did he um get a reputation <laughs> as um a faith healer and i guess like how does he uh, i guess he sees that as like an unjustified label so how does he also like cope with that well i mean certainly there is a stigma to that label and, and there certainly have been a lot of evangelists who have pursued that particular approach for profit and you know selfish reasons and you know evan the way evan I mean, Evan's a young man, uh, not that long out of, I mean, I guess he's pushing 30, but he he had gone he, from the small town, from Appleton City in, in southern Missouri, a uh, farm boy, but he had gone to MIT on scholarship. Well, actually, he'd first gone to Harvard Divinity School on scholarship because he thought he was going to be a minister. And he learned enough about Christian history that <laughs> that discouraged him. So... Um, uh then then he flipped over to science uh, went to MIT studied astrophysics got no really real satisfying answers there and 
in the course of that, and the, this is explained in the book, uh, he loses his fiance, and so he really he has really no direction at this point. So he goes home. You know what we would all do in those circumstances, and he's no really visible means of support. So he goes home to Appleton City, and the two things that he finds he can do is number one, as we all have in the um, post-internet revolution, we've all become data drillers, and so he 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 has those investigative skills, and so he he. He gets part-time work for the local Ford dealership um, chasing deadbeats, <laughs> people people who skipped on their loans. So, you yeah. know, these, these people don't realize that with, you know, their phones in their pockets, <laughs> yeah. it ain't hard to find people these days. Um, so that's number one. I mean, he's making part-time work that way. He's living in a in a rented trailer, you know, uh, hardly bigger than a closet. You know, he's a rather humble um, existence Maybe um, more humble than that right well but then also because again he had trained at harvard divinity he yeah. he had the qualifications to be a minister he is the guest preacher at a number of the local churches including the baptist church where there is his mentor is the pastor is a, mm-hmm. a, 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 a an older african-american man who is very much the his father figure his father's uh evan's father's passed away so this fellow is 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 there for advice you know the the morgan freeman <laughs> character if you will and um so so evan's a guest preacher and um uh the, he's he's scraping by financially so uh those are the two skills that he brings to amateur sleuth now, an amateur one of the one of the advantages of the amateur sleuth genre for an author like me is you really don't have to know much about police work. You you don't have to study a manual on police procedure because he's not following police procedure. He's simply he's simply he's simply following wherever the clues go, and he and he's trying to dig into it. So. Um, uh, that's an advantage. And I think from the reader's standpoint also, you know, police procedural is so such a tired genre these days. Not that there aren't brilliant novels written that way, but, you know, it's, it's oh, here's a date. In, in the very first shot, here's a dead body. What do we do about it? Uh, and, and indeed, that's how I start off. But, uh, mm-hmm. but of course, Evan's path, as, as readers will find, is as much emotional and if you will, even to some extent, spiritual in uh, in terms of of looking into the motivations, the reasons, the the karma, if you will, as to mm-hmm. why it's that question we all have: Why do bad things happen to good people? I mean, there was a there was yeah. a very famous minister who actually wrote that book, <laughs> uh, but he wasn't the first to ask the question. And and I think that that's a, a question we wrestle with every day, every day. Yeah. You know, why is there why is there evil in the world? All you have to do, I, I mean, flip on the television. Uh, you know, you're you're going. It's going to be in your face all day long. So uh, we have to find ways. And you know, it's interesting. I was I was reflecting on your 
your, uh, your your service name, Books Go Social. And I was thinking, what's more social than books? You know, storytelling has... Yeah. Storytelling has to be the world's second oldest profession, or maybe it's even the first older, oldest because you hear the love story told around the fire, and then you go, <laughs> you know, have your intimate moments. But, um, but, but seriously, storytelling is the way we relate, the way as social animals we express our concerns, our pains, the way that we ask for help, forgiveness resolution um indeed in mysteries very often um the characters will speak of closure which i think is really a rather empty term because i think it's just a synonym for revenge and there's no no way that revenge or vindictive behavior solves anything it doesn't it doesn't bring back the person who was murdered if that's the story um but yes we 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 share what in in the business world we call lessons learned that then become best practices. It's like this is how we learn, and and I I would say that is the talent of the human species is we we are survival survivors, and the reason we're survivors is we can tell each other stories and and experiences, and we can say listen. I know that looks tempting, but don't try that because I've been there. I've done that. And I, I, I had a podcast called um, Get Published Radio. And um, the, the host always introduced me as, here's Gerald Everett Jones. He, he, he has good advice because he's made all the mistakes himself. <laughs> and I mean, that's, I how, have, that's I, how you know the advice is coming from a good place. <laughs> I I was one of the very first self-publishers back when um, it was before ebooks were even available. Uh, they were in development at the time. Sony, I think, couldn't, you know, they actually had the technology. They didn't know what to do with it. But uh, I had been writing business and technical books for quite a long time. And I had a very high-powered agent for those books. And, but they were primarily... Oh, computer self-help books. Um, uh, one of one of my most successful nonfiction books was called "How to Lie with Charts," which is still taught at the university level. But really? I, but That's after impressive. I'd been at, after I'd been at this after I'd been at this for quite a long time, I said to my agent, "I said, well, you know, I'm getting kind of burned out on business books, and people don't really need computer manuals anymore." Um, I'm, I'm just going to turn to fiction. Now I had been writing, you know, spec screenplays and stories and, you know, forever, but, uh, you know, I hadn't uh, had any real uh, uh, success with them. And he just said, have a nice life. He was not about to represent fiction. And so I, I formed my own small press imprint and I've published now 13 novels um, under that imprint. And I've got one more than 20 awards um, and of of which the Preacher Evan Wycliffe series has won quite a few of those, including, um, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the New York City Big Book Awards, but one of the things that's great about yeah. them is mm -hmm. they accept not only indie publishers, but also mainstream publishers. And so I won both first and second 
Yeah, I, I actually um, in, saw that. The two books that are behind me won first and second in the same year. And so I can say best in mystery mm -hmm. in all, all in the entire <laughs> industry because I was competing against, you know, Random House uh, <laughs> Penguin. So, um, uh, yeah, I was very gratified by that. Now, now you know, that all those awards will just about get you a cup of coffee, but um it 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 is it is gratifying because somebody besides yourself said you know th this is worth picking up and so that that is one i i would say if nothing else it helps you take the next step and and suck in the next breath as a writer because there are mornings where you know why am i doing this <laughs> yeah it's more like, oh, like, what's the point of this? But yeah, but I actually, because um, I did see you um, won those awards, which was really cool. And I just wanted to um, ask you, like, um, why did you start writing in the first place? Like, was there, um, like, any authors that maybe, like, that you, that you read um, when you were younger that maybe, like, inspired you? Or was there, like, another driving force behind, like, um, this desire to write? Because uh, I know you said, like, you at first would write um business manuals um or like you know like business books about like you know like computer manuals saying you switch to fiction but um before that I mean like what what really compelled you to write so I'm just curious about that well I guess I'll I'll, I'll trace it back to I think it started in the fourth grade when I won um a short story competition from the Kansas City Public Library and my short story was, um, it was actually an essay, Why Most People Like Tom Sawyer. <laughs> uh, okay. And then in sixth grade, I won another um, short story competition. Um, and this was, it, it was indeed, mm -hmm. this was the era of mainframe computers that were just coming in. And my father in his job had actually had some training. And I think maybe I was dimly aware of computer technology, but my first short story was called The Mayor's Secretary. And it was about um, a, a mayor who was having trouble with, uh, you know, running his local government. And he uh, hired a computer to be his secretary. And oh. <laughs> um, it really didn't work out, especially when uh, the secretary, who was a robot, uh, you know, so they're really ahead of the time, you know, and AI, uh, <laughs> when he found his secretary stealing his cigars. Now, of course, there is a whole, <laughs> there's a whole Freudian dimension to, mm -hmm. you know, a, a tween writing a story about somebody stealing cigars. But, oh, yeah. um, but, but the thing was that my, my dad was a, uh, uh, trained as a scientist, also was a, a, a devout, uh, uh, Baptist Sunday school teacher, and um, uh, he really wanted me to be one or the other, a minister or a, a research scientist. And all through junior high school, I was very much headed in that direction. And I, I'd always excelled at, at science and math. And somehow along the way, um, I didn't win first prize at a science fair. Yeah. <laughs> and I won second. I won Darn second it. prize. <laughs> I won second prize, but you know, here we are, competitions yeah. again. Mm -hmm. And 
but also I was starting to read, I, I read Aldous Huxley's Brave New World. And I read, I now I read John Updike's The Centaur, which is a father-son struggle. And here I was having this issue with my dad over, I don't think I really want to do what you want me to do. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So as I got mm -hmm. it, I got into high school. I had just this brilliant, brilliant uh, English teacher my freshman year of high school um, who he had been the head of the department. He was the head of the department and he had been teaching seniors. But as he told it, his seniors were so unskilled, he felt he had to go and teach freshman classes. <laughs> so I got the top teacher in the yeah. high schools and this fellow was so brilliant cheerful cheerful charlie ruglas and his one of his favorite things was in class he would start in and he says i want to tell you about my favorite dessert souffle au chocolat and then he would describe how he would go to the to the Drake Hotel dining room, and he would it was this sumptuous restaurant, and you would or and you had to order it just when you sat down because it took two hours to prepare. And, and he would bring and he would describe how it had this crust on the outside, and then it it was it was it was some it was somewhat moist underneath that, and it was a little fudgy, and then it was creamy and liquid and warm on the inside, and the taste of chocolate. And he would go on and on. It's like, why is this guy wasting our time? This old fart. <laughs> talking about dessert and you know he did it make you hungry when he talked about well desserts? he was he was not he was not a slim fellow okay this was not a oh. health food lesson okay <laughs> but i began to realize and it was only later i realized the power of description the, the he he like you said he made us taste this thing that drove and, and of course this was all his agenda you know he was he tried he was trying to engage us in storytelling and wow did that hook set <laughs> definitely <hooked> so me in. <laughs> yeah in 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 high school then i i i um i i did a lot more writing and uh, uh then also i will say and this is really informed my education and and my life is i was head of the debate club and I began to learn to argue both sides of an argument because mm -hmm. in debate club at that time, now I don't know what it is. I can't imagine maybe, maybe at schools, they don't do things this way because it would be so non PC woke, whatever is they would give you the topic, which in those days was nuclear disarmament was one. But the thing is, you wouldn't know until the day of the debate club contest with which you're facing off against some other school, just like a football match. OK, you would not know until that morning which side you had to argue. So you had to you had to research both sides of that question. OK, that's actually a really and interesting the, way to do that. Well, and. I don't as I say, I don't know whether debate competitions work that way mm -hmm. these days. But you you had to learn to understand the logic and the evidence on both sides. It was it was like legal training, and you had to be able to argue both sides with certainly you could have passion, but you had to learn to detach yourself from your emotions, especially from how you might feel personally about the topic. 
Okay, because say a, a criminal defense attorney, okay, might know that their client or suspect that their client is guilty. But for that person to get a fair trial, you must argue their case with as much vehemence as you can muster. So that was a very early skill to learn. And I really feel as though that's something that really should be taught and emphasized more in our school system is, yes, it's fine, you know, and we got all fired up on social media, you know, with anger and, you know, resentment and vehemence and whatever, but you you need to be able to jump over and consider where the other side is coming from. And if we could appreciate that more, I think we would have more more dialogue. I mean, that's what we need. Again, it's storytelling, lessons learned. You know, how do we get from here to there? Because there's the only way we can get from here to there is by consensus. And then, you know, when I was in college, I was in something called the College of Letters. And we, it was, it was actually patterned after the Oxford PPE program. Uh, uh, politics, philosophy, and economics at Oxford. Uh, mine was literature, philosophy, and history. But we didn't have a subject major. We, I would be in these seminars in college, and and we would debate both sides of whatever the issue was. I mean, you know, Dostoevsky, crime and punishment. How can you have a main character who is so disgusting <laughs> you know how would it why how would a human why would a human act that way what could possibly motivate them and later in college i got very much involved in acting as i told you yes <laughs> I, was a, I was i was a playboy of the western world in Somerset classic irish drama and um but anyhow i i one of the things i learned as an actor is perhaps more than some other others of us actors come to understand that anybody is capable of anything. Okay. What, what would it, an actor might be asked to play a Nazi. Okay. Well, if you just think, okay, well, this fellow's a lunatic, then that's not going to get you very far in terms of a convincing performance as to why this person did what they did. Okay. Were they, were they afraid of losing their job? I mean, because certainly that that's a motivation with a lot of people who follow um, unworthy leaders is this person has power and, and, mm -hmm. you know, with, with a stroke, they could eliminate my, my income, my family, you know, the way I support my family, um, you know, they, they could ruin my reputation. I could never work again. That might be one. Or might this be some kind of quasi-religious belief in some ethos that I've just come to believe as a follower that, you know, as, as a cult, if you will. And certainly you know, we it doesn't. You don't have to look very far these days to find all kinds of of cult behavior, where um, people believe that things are fundamentally wrong in the world, that that there's stuff that just needs to change and it needs to change tomorrow, 
And so we have to use extraordinary measures to get there because this leader, this leader has, has told us this is the way, the truth, and the life. And um, that's actually a paraphrase of, of, of Jesus, but you know, he, <laughs> he was a leader too. And it, yeah. yeah, very much, it was very much a cult. Um, um, uh, I was raised a Southern Baptist. So, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, Evan is very, again, have, uh, you know, it doesn't take much imagination to realize from my story, you know, Evan studied at Harvard Divinity, he went to MIT. Well, I didn't go to those places, but I did study theology. I did. I was raised in Sunday school. You know, I I did pursue my science projects. Yeah, so, you know and I, well, I mean, it, you know, you you write what you know, you write what you know. Yeah. And I, um, I actually want to ask you, so um, those lessons that you learned um, throughout your life, like, you know, about like, you know, how anyone can do anything, like anyone is like capable of, you know, doing these evil practices or the fact that like you were kind of forced to look at both sides of the situation. Are those um, lessons that, and again, like, I'm sorry <laughs> if this includes spoilers for the book, but are those lessons that Evan has to learn through his journey of like trying to find out what happened with um you know the murder of his friend I was just well, well cer- those, certainly yeah. it comes right down to it comes right down to uh why do bad things happen to good people yeah and you know from a practical level i have unscrupulous bankers and real estate investors as my bad guys if you will this is not people carrying semi-automatic weapons okay that's not Mm -hmm. the engine of conflict here now in the second book in the series Mm -hmm. there is a bit more violence because it involved teen kidnapping but um um and that's and actually in the third book in the series uh preacher raises the dead uh it gets into um Medi- medi- in in the, it's actually a medical thriller in some ways because it happens during covid and evan actually becomes the full-time minister because uh, his his mentor retires but also he has to deal with people who not only are are hospitalized and he has to you know because you have to his visitation that's what a preacher does okay you gotta you gotta visit the sick you've got to bury the dead and so um but also he ends up having to deal with with patient dear to him who's fallen into a coma. Well, the fact that <laughs> the fact that uh, that that patient comes out of the coma, spoiler alert, it's like, okay, well, he must be a faith healer. Yeah. <laughs> all the doctors He's said, awakened. <laughs> all the doctors said is gone. So um yeah, but but I would say in terms of lessons learned there are there are specific motivations behind people's bad behavior in the case of the bankers and the real estate people simply greed okay so we've 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 greed and the willingness to be unscrupulous the will the willingness to um to feel as though you're above the law or that you can do things your own way because you're, you know, and justifies the means, you know, we're going to, you know, in that part of the country, farming has become very challenging, especially for single family farms. I mean, it's almost, I mean, a single cornfield 
on an acre, one acre of corn, I believe these days, $20 a profit in a season. I mean, it, it, it's, it's ridiculous because the, they're just, there's so much of that commodity product and there's so many big corporations, you know, um, uh, you know, in competition. And whereas an acre of strawberries, uh, now good luck raising an acre of strawberries. Most of those have, you've got to grow them in hothouses, mainly to keep the pests away because they're very vulnerable to pests and soaking them with pesticides probably is a bad thing <laughs> because Not the strawberries, <laughs> well, strawberries absorb pesticides because their skin is so thin. So you really now organic, uh, if it really is organic, that's the way to go. But um, an acre of strawberries, uh, $30,000 of profit. Wow. So um, soybeans, um, a better deal, okay, than corn. But but farming in general, that part of the country used to be all farmland. Mm-hmm. And it was it was corn for cattle, and it was cattle driven to market like, uh, you know, the slaughterhouses were in Kansas City. Um, not so much anymore. And the new model for business development in, in that part of Missouri is Branson, which is in the very southern part of the state, and that is a tourist resort town. And that is patterned on Nashville, and it's mm-hmm. on the lake. So it's water sports and casinos. And now, um, I, one, of, in one of your questions, you asked me what, what are some of the, <clears throat> the comps or the models I didn't model this series on the TV series Ozark. It had appeared after uh, I started uh, writing the series, but Ozark is in the same setting. It is there on the Lake of the Ozarks. Uh, there are, you know, casinos are very much in the picture. Um, uh, life on the water, um, and and so it's that it's that environment and that small town. There, there's that small town mentality, if you will, uh, the gossip engine uh, that that informs the intrigue, because you know if you're if you're the sheriff of of um, of in that part of the world, as uh, you know, and that's one of Evan's close friends. Of course, <laughs> they have coffee at, the, at yeah. the same cafe. Okay, they know everybody in town. Well, but the thing is, if you're the sheriff, you you really can't pay too much attention to gossip. <laughs> okay, you you can't act on every you know on every whim that you hear. Now, small as the gossip. sheriff, <laughs> as the sheriff does, he can pass that on to Evan and say, you know, if you ever, if you find any if you find any real evidence, you'd better let me know. Because I, I I don't want an apple to fall from a tree in my county and not know about it, but um, but you know you understand my hands are tied. I can't spend the county money uh, on an investigation where we've closed the books, and that was that's what happens in the first novel. So that's part of it. But but again, if you're talking about why bad things happen to good people, why is there evil in the world? You come right down to. You're right at the fundamental theological question of, well, would we know good? Would we know joy? Would we would life have any interest 
if there weren't the opposites of those forces at work in a kind of dynamic. Okay. Thank you for listening. Tune in to part two of my conversation with Gerald on Sunday.